ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Follow the evidence where it leads. It seems like a simple statement and is certainly something we aspire to, but in practice it can be challenging, even risky, if following the evidence conflicts with prevailing scientific consensus. Hello, I'm Eric Anderson, and I'm honored to bring you a new occasional series on ID the Future. Over the next several months, I'll be talking with some members of the intelligent design community about their stories, their backgrounds and experiences, why they're involved with intelligent design, the challenges and importance of following the evidence where it leads. In short, why it matters. Some are well-known publicly and have been the tip of the spear in getting the message of intelligent design out to the world. Others work more quietly, but just as tirelessly behind the scenes. Some have been attacked for their views and even had their careers threatened due to their support of intelligent design. Others have made the decision to pursue intelligent design, even though it means less professional support or prestige than they might have otherwise enjoyed. In all cases, they've made a decision to keep at it in spite of the challenges. I hope you enjoy getting to know these individuals a little bit better and are inspired as I have been by their stories. I'm delighted to welcome today our first guest, Ann Gager who to me has been not just an example, but a mentor and a personal friend. Welcome, Anne. I'm glad to be here, Eric. So, Anne, normally we start these podcasts with a list of our guests' degrees and qualifications and impressive accomplishments, but we'll talk about those a little bit later today. I'd like to do something a little different at the start this time. And if I can do this without getting emotional or making it sound like a much too premature eulogy, I feel it would be remiss if I didn't if I didn't share a little bit of an impact that you've had on me personally. Oh wow! So I've followed the uh, debate over evolution and intelligent design for many years, and I'm well familiar with the arguments and the evidence. But about five years ago, I decided to be a little more public about my support and get involved. So I attended Discovery Institute's summer seminar, and by the way, definitely a big plug for summer seminar. That was just a wonderful and and really valuable experience. So that was when I first met you, I believe, and Brian Miller and some others, and really appreciated how you were fully engaged with the seminar and took time to reach out to several of us personally and start mm-hmm. to mentor us along the path. Do you remember what year that was? Uh, 2017, I think, yeah. Okay, all right. I remember um, you guys had just gotten back the prior fall from the um, big meeting in the UK. Yeah. Which was which was a big deal. So that was that was great. And then second, your support and input were critical in getting an important project off the ground, which resulted in Discovery's wonderful uh, recent introductory volume, Evolution and Intelligent Design in a Nutshell. And as a co-author and editor of that book, I'll always be grateful for your encouragement and support in making that happen. Well, it was my pleasure. I remember when you were talking about it, I was quite sure it would be a good book for. Uh, everybody concerned and it needed to be published. Thank you. Appreciate your support on that. And then lastly, I, as you know, I spend a lot of my time these days with the engineering research group at Discovery. And many listeners may not know that you played a critical role in bringing together what at the time was kind of a small ragtag band of engineers and biologists in some initial planning and working sessions that eventually grew into the engineering research group in our first professional conference last year. So that was a important role that you played as well. So that's been a big impact on me. Oh, great. The engineers, my my father, my brother, my grandfather, they were all engineers. And oh, it seems okay. to so me... you come by it honestly. I do. Uh, <laughs> you, you'll see. My family divides. Women are biologists and men are engineers. Oh, interesting. <laughs> there you go. 
That's awesome. So anyway, Anne, um, just over the past five years that I've known you, you've had a profound effect on my direction and my involvement with intelligent design. I just wanted to take the opportunity to personally thank you. I know others could probably share similar experiences of how you've encouraged and mentored them. Well, thank you. I really appreciate hearing that, Eric. It's, uh, It's good when we do that for each other. Awesome. Thank you. So, Anne, let's talk about your story. Where, where were you born? Uh, go back to the beginning here. Where were you born? Where did you spend your early years? Well, my father was a career army officer, and so I was born in Germany. Mm. He was sent to Germany in, let's see, it would be 1950. It was early days uh, after World War II, and yeah. Germany was still recovering. My mother told told stories about refugees from East Germany coming through and trying to sell personal belongings to raise money for their, mm. their families. In fact, we have a print from an artist professor, beautiful print uh, that he sold to my mother in just that way. So mm. I, I treasure it as a symbol of what people went through in those days. You still have that uh, in your family. Yeah, it's hanging on the wall right outside wow. in the hallway. And so I was raised on the move. Every two years or so, we moved. And I have experience from all different parts of the country, the Midwest, the South, the East Coast in general. And I kept moving after I went to college and then started working. It was a ingrained in me that I needed to move every couple of years. <laughs> One wanderlust ingrained. Yeah, yeah, I get an itchy feet every two years. I have to oh, watch no, it. Oh, no, there you go. Yeah. So <laughs> did, did you have any siblings or do you have any siblings? That... I have one brother and okay. both of us went to MIT. Okay. Which is quite something. And my brother, uh, he worked for Bose Corporation. He just retired. And he mm. is one of the chief designers of noise-canceling headphones. Oh, okay. And, and so you mentioned your father's uh, work. Was your mother uh, working at home or what did she do? Well, she trained as a biology teacher and there's a story okay. there. My great, great aunt was a geneticist. My hmm. great aunt was an organic chemist and my aunt was a bacteriologist. Wow. So you didn't have any choice. You had to kind of Yeah. Follow. It was sort of like, um, okay, following the family footsteps. Your choice is either engineering or biology. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's and, amazing. Yeah, yeah. So so would you say your parents were more uh, religious or secular in their leanings as you were growing up in your early years, or did you have a sense of that? Yeah, well, my father was a b- believer, and he taught me the Lord's Prayer, I remember. Mm. My mother was, well, she was probably one of those raised Christian, uh, but not particularly practicing people. And Both of them were Presbyterian, but we were always moving. And when we were on an army post, we'd often go to the chapel there, and that would be non-denominational. Yeah. So attending church wasn't a really big thing, but my father did want me to get confirmed in the Presbyterian Mm. church. And he uh, had a big uh, bribe. That's probably the wrong word, but (laughs) he was going off to Vietnam. And he asked me to get confirmed while he was in Vietnam. Okay. So there was a big emotional connection. Yeah. Okay. And you and you did that while he was out. Yeah, I wasn't a believer. I was one of those people who was unsure, just waiting to see, mm-hmm. you know, how it how it checked out. 
And so I took the preparation course for becoming confirmed. And the course was to read the book of Acts. Mm -hmm. And we went through the book of Acts and I found it quite interesting and it was historical. And and then we got to the end and it just sort of ended in the middle of a story about Paul. (laughs) And I remember saying to the teacher, what happened next? Mm. And she said, I don't know. (laughs) And I decided, okay, this is all made up, because if it was true, there would be more to this story. (laughs) I see. And how old were you at the time? I was a freshman in high school. Okay. So that put the kibosh on my believing in God at the moment. I I was just, I I decided I was, if God didn't personally let me know that he was there, I was going to wait until he did. (laughs) Okay. Okay. But you went through with you went through with the uh, the event. I actually and, don't remember if I got confirmed. Oh. I don't remember the end <laughs> yeah. of the story. <laughs> Big impression on you, right? That's yeah. Funny. Yeah. Okay. So I, I I would urge all religious instruction teachers to know their faith. <laughs> what Past happened with Paul? The point of the end of Acts. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So so what are, what are the things kind of interested you at the time? I mean, were you doing music or sports or art or as you're growing up there as a teenager? I was doing music. I played in the band, played the clarinet. Mm. On my own, I was drawing and doing watercolors. And okay. my big thing was riding horses. I had oh. always wanted to have a horse. And when we moved to Kansas, in the middle of Kansas, Fort Riley, Kansas, there's a big I forget what they call it, but where the land is set aside for the army reserve oh, okay. and yep. mm-hmm. and very spacious and no signs of human habitation, no telephone poles or electrical wires or roads or houses or anything. Mm-hmm. It was just wild. And it also happened that this army post was one of them where uh, historically the cavalry came from. There was a house that Custer lived in, oh, okay. and it was said to be haunted. I don't know if that's <laughs> true. <laughs> and it was also the place where the last living cavalry horse had been stabled, mm. and he had died just a couple of years before I arrived. And he was buried on the um, parade ground with a statue. His name, I can't remember, but... Yeah, the last cavalry horse. And Mm. so there was a stable, and there were GIs that ran it. And so my parents got me a horse when I was 16. Oh, wow. And this is actually pretty influential for me. I was an unhappy kid. I didn't have many friends. In fact, I didn't have any until that year. Mm. I made friends with another student who was also in the same boat. She was a daughter of a army officer, a pastor, and she had a horse that she rode. And she instructed me in horseback riding before I had a horse of my own. So when I got my horse, she and I would ride out in the hills, just looking at the beauty of things. Uh, The Mm. tall grasslands of Kansas State are, um, when they're wild, they're, they're really lovely and diverse and there are lots of birds and insects you can watch. I love um, the meadowlark. Mm. And the beauty of creation that I saw there convinced me that there had to be a God because you don't get that kind of beauty and 
diversity and order at the same time from randomness. Uh, mm-hmm. Beauty doesn't come from randomness, contra what a lot of modern art would say. <laughs> yeah. And, so so go, go, go ahead. I was just going to ask, um, because I was going to ask you if there was kind of a defining moment in your life that, that kind of hit you and when you realized you needed to kind of change the direction of your life, would you say this was one of them or? Yeah. The, the beauty of nature convinced me that there was a God and I didn't know what to do with that knowledge. I, but I uh, held on to it and it gave me hope in a way I hadn't had before. Like I said, I was a lonely, unhappy kid and, uh, I was, as you might guess, pretty brainy, and the other students didn't like me because, mm. as they said, I spoiled the curve. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So, so you have this experience. You kind of tuck this away in the back of your mind, maybe in the back of your heart would be a better way to say it. And then and then what happened later? You go on to college, and what are you studying And before there? that, my, we moved again. Okay. I actually went to four different high schools. So. Oh, wow. We moved again, and I was in Virginia for my junior, senior year, and I was invited to go to a Bible study, led a physics teacher who was at my high school. Oh, interesting. He he was a a navigator, if people know what that means, and they were reading the Gospel of John, and it really touched me, the personality of Jesus, who he was, came through very strongly in the book, the stories and mm-hmm. his di- dialogues, maybe you should call them monologues, um, where he he says things like, I am the light, right. um, I am the resurrection. And that reminded me that when I had been much younger, I had seen the movie Ben-Hur. Mm. And the final scenes of Ben-Hur are quite moving because Jesus' death on the cross brings about the healing of uh, the mother and sister of Ben-Hur. And I remember just wishing and wishing that it was true. Mm. So then when I was introduced to the Gospel of John, it it stirred the same feelings in me. I wish it was true. This is a wonderful, wonderful story. I wish it was true. How do I know if it's true? And I literally asked for the gift of faith because I couldn't make that leap myself. Right. Okay. So you have these experiences that are kind of giving you a change of heart, if you will, a desire. And then you go to college. What are you studying there? And and where did you go? Well, I went to MIT, not because it was my plan, but because my father wanted me to go there. Mm-hmm. He was an engineer. And if you're an engineer, MIT is like the place to go. He wanted to go there, but couldn't. And so he wanted to send me there. (laughs) Mm. I wanted to be a marine biologist, and MIT has a connection with Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. So that was the plan. And I was to be a biology major. And I also started going to church. I, I did come to faith in Christ when I was at tail end of my senior year. And I lived with a group of students who were Christian on campus and then also off. My faith, okay, biology at MIT, when I was there, uh, 71 to 75, what, they didn't teach uh, anything about evolution. It was all the new molecular biology that was mm-hmm. happening. 
there was a lot of stuff going on at MIT that as an undergraduate, I wasn't informed about, but uh, found out later that some of my own research had contributed to. So, um, so did, was there, did you have any particular thoughts about evolution one way or another or, or not really at that point? No, I didn't think about it. I, um, well, I think only time it really seriously crossed my mind was one of my professors, a bio, biochemistry professor, he was sure that this new field of molecular biology was going to provide all the answers mm-hmm. and that now that we knew the genetic code and, and how we could figure out how proteins worked, that would be it. And proteins have irregular structures. So he said there will you know, biology has a lot of things that it can do, but there will never be a wheel. <laughs> mm. And I yeah. remember thinking at the time, well, that's rather arrogant to say. How do you know that? <laughs> why, why would there not be a wheel? <laughs> yeah. So um, it, it turns out there are lots of things in biology that function like a wheel. Um, <laughs> We've got a lot of rotary motors, for one a thing. A lot of rotary <laughs> motors, yep. <laughs> we have some other things And they look well. like perfect circles to me, um, you know, they, uh, built out of protein. So anyway. Um, Interesting. Okay, so you're so you're mostly um, not hearing a lot about evolution, but you're you're getting a lot in terms of the new molecular biology that's starting to come out. Mm-hmm. And then what what did you do after MIT? Okay, well, in the, the course of MIT, I was a young woman, and there were twelve men for every one woman on campus at the beginning. <laughs> the ratio was eight to one. But being a woman in science, I didn't get the feedback that that I'm sure some of the students were getting. Mm. My advisor, who was a scientist working under a Nobel Prize chemist, <laughs> he, he he would approve my, my course choices, but he didn't offer any positive comments. He didn't ever say to me, I think you should go to graduate school or oh. it just just. So I got discouraged and. Looking around at all the the um, amazing talent and the creativeness and the kingdom building that went on at MIT, it was uh, something I didn't want to pursue as a graduate student. So I elected to study education for a year and then go off and teach okay. high school. I, I taught high school for two years in New Jersey at a private school. Okay. And you're still single at the time? or? Yep, still single. I dated in college, but nothing came of any of it. So I moved to New Jersey. I had wanted to stay in Massachusetts, where all my friends were, but I couldn't find a job there. And once again, I was alone and mm-hmm. ended up moving in with uh, in, in a home shared by a number of people and lived there while I taught. And um, two things happened. One is I started a Bible study of my own, Hmm. and students came, but also faculty. And in the course of the Bible study, I considered the question of young earth creationism versus evolution, because that's all I knew that was out there. Right. And I decided that young earth creationism didn't satisfy what I understood of science. So um, I just sort of let that drop. And then the other thing that happened was I was a new female teacher in a male-dominated school, and 
if you weren't a coach for a major sport, you didn't get attention. I helped coach fencing. <laughs> oh, there you go. I knew nothing about fencing. <laughs> it's really ironic. But they needed a female there because they were female fencers. So I learned a little bit. But it wasn't enough to give me more money. And I, I went to the vice principal of the school and asked for a raise. And he basically told me, well, look, you are not an alumnus and you do not coach soccer. And so, and also you aggravated the parents of one of the students who were quite wealthy and probably major contributors to the school. <laughs> I, I told them that their son wasn't as smart as he thought he was. Oh, there you go. Dangerous move. <laughs> Dangerous move. Anyway, so I left uh, New Jersey. I decided I was going to go back to science research, and I was going to do that oceanography thing. And so I went off, drove to California, and worked for a year to establish residency, and then applied to Scripps Oceanography. oceanography Oh, sure. Institute and talked to a professor there. He accepted me as his student. Um, but then what happened was there was a party that I went to at my, we hosted a party at our little um, shack by the sea. <laughs> I don't know what else to call it. And, and it was full of graduate students from University of San Diego and Scripps Institute. And so we were all sitting around talking and some of them were from Oceanographic Institute. And one of them told me, you don't want to do oceanography because they don't let the women on the ships. Oh, interesting. And uh, you'll be stuck in a lab on, uh, you know, the land. Right. And that was not encouraging because one of the things I loved about it was the idea of being able to do research on the ocean itself, not sure. just samples. So it was a, the reason for it, of course, was this was this would have been 1976. And this was before a lot of accommodations had been made to make it possible for women to do this. They needed to put in more bathrooms on the ship. <laughs> it's before the, the idea of uh, unisex or um, right. was possible. So, you know, there wasn't a separate place for women to sleep. There wasn't a separate place for anything for women. So they didn't let women on the ships. Hmm. Okay. So what did you do when you hear this news? Well, I wandered around a little more and then I, I settled in Seattle because it was the major research concentration where there were a lot of uh, labs and um, research programs to get uh, a job as a research tech. Still related to oceanography, you mean? No, couldn't do the... Well, that's interesting. The first job I took was partly uh, working on chick tendon fibroblasts, and the other was, for the same professor, working on sand dollars and sea urchins okay. development. So... Yeah, that was as close as I got to the ocean. We'd go out to the ocean to collect sand dollars and sea urchins and bring them back. Oh, there you go. It was a, you know, a good experience. And when her lab had to close, I moved to biochemistry lab in also at the University of Washington. Then things got on got interesting because about that time 
I had decided I wanted to become Catholic. And it's apart from this story, not necessary to talk about how that happened. But I was thinking, since I was still unmarried, and I didn't have a successful dating life, shall we say, <laughs> um, I was thinking maybe I wanted to go and be a nun. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so there was a mo- monastery I was interested in, seriously, a Benedic- hmm. Benedictine monastery. And so they said, you have to go back and talk to the head of our order, the abbess. Mm-hmm. So I did. I went back and talked to her, and she listened to me explain what I was interested in and what I had done. And she said, you need to get your Ph.D. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, there's a theme to this story that I'll mention now, and it'll be recurring. You'll notice that I'm not doing any of this because I have a plan. (laughs) I'm just bouncing from one event to the next and wandering all over the place. So I said, okay. And I went off and I applied to University of Washington because that's where I was. And it's also where it was. This was April. It was still possible for me to get my applications in. So I did. And a little bit of a story there. I uh, was accepted by three to, the three out of the three departments I applied to. Hmm. Well, that's not quite true. I was interviewed, and the genetics department interviewer asked me, so, are you planning to get married? Mm. That was a serious no-no. It was illegal. Yeah, you, can't, you can't ask that these days, I'll tell you. Maybe you not even do then. It then e- either. <laughs> I knew that was illegal. But I just told him, well, I don't know. I don't have any, you know, I don't have anyone I'm dating now. Right. It's, it's a serious thing. For the scientist, because they want someone that they know will continue with research as a legacy. Right. And uh, scientists talk about the the lineage you come from. Sure. Um, you know, and so it would be a big deal for the scientist if I just quit again. <laughs> he also wanted to know, okay, what did you do in that eight-year period where you were off teaching and wandering around? And I mm-hmm. – you know, he wanted to see if I was up to date and I wasn't. So I didn't get accepted there, but I did get accepted by uh, the zoology department. And I, uh, by now I was 30. And another funny story, my advisor was hanging out with us, others, with our students. And he, he jokingly said, well, you guys better get, he's Swiss, better get your, your work done now while you still have brain cells after 30. <laughs> You begin to lose brain cells. And I looked at the other student who knew how old I was. And I said, should I tell him now or later? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. So, so so just to be clear, you're, you're applying for what, a master's or a PhD? A P- or? PhD program. Okay. okay. It was an all-in-one. You didn't have to get a separate master's degree. Right. Okay. All right. And so you're accepted to zoology. And is that where you ended up doing your PhD? Yep. Okay. All and. Right. In the first year, we got a project done that was very exciting, and it was accepted by the journal Nature. Mm. It was published there. Yeah, that's Uh, a big deal. Congratulations on that. Yeah. And I was given a National Science Foundation pre-doctoral fellowship, which also was a great help. 
Right. I, my advisor was wonderful. Um, it, it was a positive experience. And while I was in graduate school, I started about 1983. I met my husband-to-be in 1986, and we got married in 1989, just shortly before I defended my thesis. Okay. And he was living there in Seattle as well? or Yeah, he's from Seattle, okay. uh, a native. We met at a Catholic singles club event, and... Uh, there's a story there which is completely unrelated to science. So, so it did help you to become Catholic to, to date then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, your, your story with the abbess um, reminds me of uh, Maria from The Sound of Music, right? Where she tells her mm -hmm. she wants, and she says, no, you've got another path in life. <laughs> right. So I worked, uh, you know, I did my research and wrote it up. Um, and in the meantime, I applied for postdoctoral positions. And I got accepted at Harvard Mm -hmm. uh, to do fruit fly genetics and molecular biology, I was oh, going okay. to I was going to be studying the kinesin light chain in Drosophila. Kinesin is a molecule of protein that moves. It looks like it's walking mm. if you do uh, molecular reconstructions, and it looks like it's it's walking like a with long legs and then has a little tiny head and shoulders at the top. And the, the light chain is what makes up the head and shoulders. And it's also where the things that Kinesin carries The cargo attach. attaches, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's some wonderful animations of that. Mm -hmm. And so I, I cloned the Kinesin light chain from Drosophila. That was what I did as a postdoc. Oh, wow. Okay. And so what, what's your postdoc? Um, I mean, how would you describe that? Would you say that that's biochemistry? Would you say that's microbiology? What, how would you describe it to people if you were telling them what you worked on in a field? It was molecular biology. Molecular biology. Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, while I was a postdoc, I wrote that one paper describing the cloning and what the characterization of the kinesin light chain. And I had two babies. Oh, okay. Well, that's pretty pretty busy time. Yeah. <laughs> Hope your I husband was supporting you well during that. Uh, he was, he was, but my advisor was not. Oh, no. Yeah, not too happy with that. He was plan, not happy. Huh? He thought I wasn't producing enough. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, producing in what way, right? Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> okay, so, 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 to, so to just summarize then, because we didn't do this at the beginning of the podcast. So you have a degree from MIT in... Biology. Biology. Okay. And then you have a PhD from the University of Washington in? Zoology. Zoology. And then you have postdoc work in microbiology. Mo molecular biology. Molecular biology. Excuse me. Molecular biology from Harvard. Okay. Wow. I, I did microbiology when I was an undergrad at mm -hmm. MIT. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Well, that's an impressive, that's an impressive resume, Anne, for just wandering around as you describe it. I know, and I, I didn't have somewhere. a clue. I didn't have a clue why. While I was in graduate school, I wasn't particularly happy at uh, halfway through. Mm. And I remember saying, you know, I was in contact with the monastery and still still contacting them and writing to them. And I remember saying to God on the steps of the library, why do you have me studying science? Mm. I don't know why I'm studying science. How am I going to serve you by studying science? Wow. Hmm. And I didn't get an answer. <laughs> not, not yet, anyway. Huh? No, not yet. 
That was the first half of my conversation with Dr. Ann Gager about her remarkable personal journey from a young girl riding horses on the Kansas prairie to a published postdoc researcher in molecular biology in the halls of Harvard. Next time, we'll learn about a personal and family challenge that took her out of active research for a time, and then how she eventually became acquainted with intelligent design and returned to her love of science, becoming one of the well-known figures in the intelligent design movement. For more inspirational stories like these, join us again at ID the Future. And remember to share a link with a friend. For ID the Future, I'm Eric Anderson. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.